This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rest is Entertainment with me, Marina Hyde. And me, Richard Osman. Happy Boxing Day, everyone. Have you survived it? I hope you have. Uh, and People are savvy enough, aren't they, to know that we're not actually recording this on Boxing Day. People know enough about no, the business. We recorded it a day before, didn't we? So we recorded it on Christmas Day. Yes, we're sitting here with our mulled wine, realising, though, that Boxing Day is the best day of Christmas. Of course and it is. therefore, this, it's perfect that the show should drop on that day. Now, what we're doing on this occasion is the first ever edition where the questions have come from you and I have to say that the questions that came in were so good it's been very difficult to pick the ones we're going to answer but please keep them coming the rest is entertainment at gmail.com or on any of the show- socials uh, because we might go we might do a bit more of this as time yeah, goes on. Yeah I think so because so, some of the questions are great and if we don't cover yours today we might cover yours in, yes. a, in, a, in another episode but we will be doing more of this well this listen we might be terrible we might be monosyllabic and the answers are, but you know, I mean, we know literally... nothing. Nobody knows anything and we know even less. So we will try to answer them, but you know, bear with yeah. us. But essentially, we're sitting here with a bottle of Baileys and some pigs in blankets. <laughs> and here we go. Here is one that a number of people have asked, which is what is your favourite celebrity story of the year? For me, there is no contest. It is the Gwyneth Paltrow ski massacre trial. Oh, yeah. If you remember, this was the situation where. Either Gwyneth Paltrow skied into a retired ophthalmologist in Utah or a retired ophthalmologist skied into Gwyneth Paltrow. You've heard of sort of low-stakes drama. This I liked because it was a no-stakes drama. I mean, I don't know quite why the ophthalmologist bought the case, but it was essentially you couldn't really care about either of the parties. It happened in this... I mean, aesthetically hideous orange Utah courtroom into which Gwyneth wafted in incredible outfits every day and gave a sort of hilarious performance on the witness stand, her majesty herself, saying things like, um, when they said to her, you know, what have you really lost? And she said, well, I lost half a day skiing, so... <laughs> It ended up, I'm afraid, with the ophthalmologist, in my view, quite rightly losing the case and the $300,000 claim he'd bought against it. As far as I understand it from the American legal system, any claim should just automatically be $300 million. So I'm not quite sure why he lowballed her so completely, but she lowballed him even further by seeking a $1 in exemplary damages, which I think she got. Did she? That's classy. But did you enjoy that story? Because it was, I mean, I think Sky actually televised the court case. I kind of loved it. I assume someone's doing a drama. 
No, it, that's the annoying thing is that someone has already done a documentary, which I think is coming out now. It's called Gwyneth versus whatever his name is. I'm afraid we've forgotten. That's um, a, that would be a great title, Gwyneth versus whatever, whatever his, his name, name is. is. I'm afraid yeah. we've forgotten. Well, that's a strand, Richard. You could come back how many times with that one? Yeah, couldn't you just? Um, did I like that story? I'm not sure I care all that much about what Gwyneth Paltrow gets up to. It's funny, of course, that it was a, it, it was a court case where nothing bad had happened to anybody. I quite like that, uh, and that the guy himself was such an obvious dad of one of your friends' character, who uh, <laughs> was was clearly not telling the truth. And Gwyneth Paltrow, just like Prince Harry, was not going to give up, and she went in there and uh, and and you know brought justice to the world. But and um, a number of luxurious knits. Yeah. See, that's the thing I can't get involved with: what people are wearing. In a, you don't like the witness box being used as a catwalk. I don't like. Okay. I don't like the catwalk being forward. used as a catwalk. You know, I'll watch if I'm watching Strictly or something. People are going, "Oh my god, look at those dresses!" I'm not. Oh, what? I just, I just want to see the scores. Just give me the numbers. That's all I care about. Uh, so yeah, when you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in what Gwyneth is wearing. I'm not sure what she'd have to do in 2024 to really pique my interest. Oh, she'll find something. There'll be a product. There's always a product. You know, maybe she'd sue Ronnie O'Sullivan or something. Then I'm, then I'm interested. She might do. Okay. You know, she might bump into him. She at, might do. At the Crucible. She's in a play. Like, he's training for the old world championships. They bump into each other. She trips. Wow, you've... D- in, injures her elbow. Hold that movie pitch before you let go of all the gold, because <laughs> I think you should roll that one out to certainly one of the streamers. Um, my favourite celebrity story of the year just happened. It's the fact that they finally done a celebrity escape to the country where oh. they took like big ins round to try and find a house. They're taking Jenny Ryan from the chase round to find a house. It's lovely watching celebrities not buying houses in exactly the same way that uh, that normal human beings don't buy houses. On How have shows. I not seen this? I need to get onto this there immediately. That's a perfect Boxing Day fair, isn't it? Well, in, and in fact, it relates to one of our other questions. This one comes from Shane Rooney, and he says, I've always wondered why people go on shows like Location, 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 Escape to the Country, etc. Surely they could just pop down to an estate agent and get their help. Well, I mean, they could do, but they wouldn't be on television. <laughs> That's the point, isn't it? It's like you can do a pub quiz, but, you know, it's it's kind of more exciting to go on Pointless or something, isn't it? And go to a studio and have makeup and have cameras around. Uh, I think it's just the fun of it. There's no real advantage other than... I think there's a thing you see on Bargain Hunt, you see all sorts of things where people are are slightly more willing to give you a deal yeah. because there's a camera pointing at them. So on Bargain Hunt, you know, you can get a a, a plate, you know, worth £50 and they give it to you for £40 because there's a camera in their face. And it's possible that, uh, you know, a homeowner from Wiltshire will give you a £350,000 cottage for £330,000 because they've got a camera in their That's face. That's bizarre. I, so you, you, I would have thought that people would... You think the sport being a good sport overrides being sort of be seen to be canny. I would have thought that people would want to drive an even harder bargain because the camera's on them. But that's really interesting. That, uh, that makes, That's quite heartwarming, really. Well, they're outside of their comfort zone. You see, that's the point. And they don't know how they're expected to behave. Everyone's, we've watched so much television in our life so we, we, we sort of feel like we know what it is and suddenly there's a camera pointed at you and someone's offering you some money for something it's like a policeman talking to you that's brilliant you know, so you adopt you the morays and, and the and the conventions of the medium rather than the world you know very well which is i'm going to be an auctioneer or selling houses how fascinating exactly I did, I did i mean we did celebrity antiques road trip and uh, yeah we got um we got a lot of bargains until the auction which they held in staffordshire and the auctioneer was like, oh, what have we got now? Here's a plate. 
okay, £10, anyone, I don't mind. And, oh, my God, we were fuming because we've got some nice <laughs> things. But again, every time you say to somebody, they'll say £90, and you go, how about 70 Come on. And there's a camera pointing at them. There's, there's two things they can do. They can say no, which everyone in Britain knows is bad television. They know, they've seen that show. They know that in that show, I suggest some money, and they go, yeah, all right, go on then. Or they say, how about 75 Right, they know that's what happens, and so that's what everybody did. So we thought we were gonna, we thought we were going to make money. We both lost a lot of money. My short answer is, I think it's fun to be on TV. I think someone, yeah, you get someone to do your negotiating for you, and you I'd know, love that. If you're if you're selling your house and you've got two people making an offer, and one of them is just you know a couple from Daventry, and one of them's got a TV crew with them, you go, oh, it might be a bit of fun, might it, just to sell it to the TV people. I mean, not that anyone ever makes an offer on those shows, really. Do they not? And if they do, it's always to the mystery house. They yeah, do the, mystery so the mystery house, house always wins. Yeah, it might as well be called, and, and finally, and, the good house. And finally, we haven't put it all in at one. Yeah, exactly. But by and large, no one's going on that show really to buy a house. They're going on that show to be on television because it's really, really good fun. Well, I think that was a very good answer, It's a really Shane. good question None of it as well. came from me. Thank you, Shane. And Shane Rooney is a great name. It's like a League Two footballer. I, yes, I love it. This is a question from John Johnston. Merry Christmas, John. Who is genuinely the loveliest person in showbiz? Some of the most popular presenters, someone like Claudia Winkleman, who's absolutely lovely and people love. She's completely authentic and it works. She works as a presenter because she's just like that in real life. There's absolutely no difference between what you see on the screen and how she'll be when she's with you. And there's a degree, I think you probably could in like light entertainment back in the 70s, as we can see. But now it's quite hard to fake those kind of really good connections with audiences. Yeah, I think so. It's hard, isn't it? Because I've worked with so many millions of people and they'll all be furious. So I'm just, I try and pick a name out of left field. I would say, I tell you who's lovely, Clive Myrie is a very, very lovely man. Yeah. And very talented. The next one is from Simon Donnell, and he says, I'm curious to know to what extent, if at all, panel shows such as Have I Got News For You, Mock The Week, League Of Their Own, etc. are scripted beyond the presenter, and what the panellists know in advance of filming? That's such a good question. Well, I'd tell you, I mean, Have I Got News For You is an interesting sort of, that's sort of in the middle somewhere, which is obviously the, the, the chairperson's script is written, so everything that's done down the camera is written. There's a team of really great joke writers, Sean Pye, Christine Rose, other people who write great jokes and that week's host does those jokes. There's also, of course, a lot of other business that the host does, which is not scripted. It's just, you know, questions on cards and, you know, they can, they can be off the cuff. In terms of panellists, if I go on, have I got news for you? So look, I was on a couple of weeks ago and uh, I knew the uh, Boris and the inquiry, with the COVID inquiry would come up and a new Rwanda would come up. So you can have a little think. And in the old days, I would make sure I sort of, sort of had like a couple of jokes just so I felt safe. And now I'll just go in with one thing. So you can predict roughly what's going to happen in the first round. Second round, third round, you don't know uh, what's going to happen. And having produced those shows as well, the key thing is you don't want someone to come in with jokes written down because they try and crowbar them in and it breaks up the, the show. So have I got news for you? It's a lovely show. You know, if I know I've got one thing under my belt, so you know, I'm not going to panic in front of an audience, all the funny stuff is the off-the-cuff stuff. All the funny stuff is the running jokes from the start of the show, you know, reacting to the other players. So have I got news for you is quite unscripted. One thing they give you is that final round, you know, the missing words. Yeah. When you turn up about an hour before recording, over dinner they give you that just so you can have a little think about it. And pictures, anything like that. Might you see that in advance? You might see that, exactly. Yeah. But okay. not very long in advance. No. Is the truth. But by and large, uh, in, in a kind of 
27 minute show you know, other than the host almost all of it is made and up on the spot how long does the show take to record god a long time two hours probably wow it's a fun show to see because there's yeah. no there's no recording breaks or anything like that so it's, it's literally like a two hour version of have i got news for you and paul and ian don't prep if you know what i mean i mean they you yeah know, they read they read the news but they haven't got jokes worked out uh so it's it's a fun show to watch that a show like mock the week is very very written because that's the format of the thing, you know, you're asked certain questions yeah. and, you know, however witty you are, there are certain things you you can't all immediately think of a clever answer to lines you'd never hear in a TV advert. Yeah. But equally, Dara on that show isn't really scripted and in, in the later uh, series of it, he's very good with some of the younger comics and they, you know, they chat and again, running jokes. So the really funny stuff, people know when something's not scripted, some, when someone says something they couldn't have possibly prepared. The show where there's no prep, there's no script, there's no nothing, and it's the most fun show to do, is Would I Lie to You? Huh. So Would I Lie to You, which is just a dream. I think it's the best show on TV. So in that show, you'll do an interview with a researcher a few weeks before where you'll tell stories from your life. Uh, but after that, you know nothing until you sit there, you turn over a card, and it's either one of the stories you've told them or it's a, a lie that's just completely been made up and you have you have not seen it. No one has seen it. Rob hasn't seen it. Uh, you know, Lee hasn't seen it. David hasn't. No one's seen it. And so that's completely unscripted, which I think was why people love that. Because I worked uh, with the team behind that, the producers, that might be the funniest man in the world, um, Peter Holmes. Whenever I go on it, they give me the worst. Like, they just give me... I went on <laughs> and they said, um, they said, you turn over this card. So you're literally sitting there. Lee opposite you, I'm sitting next to Tom Courtney or something. You turn over this card and it just says, When I was a child, I invented a superhero called Snooker Table Boy who had three special powers and one arch enemy. Boom. And then you're right. And then Lee's straight on you. Okay, go on then. What were the powers? And you, you have zero time to prep. And that's why it's such a fun show because it is the fun, the panic of the thing. And because the three of them are such good mates. League of Their Own, fairly scripted because there's people there who aren't comics and, you know, it's produced in such a way. But most shows, they have a certain structure, a certain spine. But every producer knows that the fun stuff, the good stuff, is the stuff that comes off the back of that. It's the stuff where people are yeah, extemporising. There's such an, um, the, the, the immediacy of it, and people know that it's just been come up with. And there's a real rush to that, even as the audience watching, where you think, oh, there's no possible way they thought of that. So you're, you're much better disposed to jokes that are off the cuff, I think, as an audience always. Much, much funnier. If, there's absolutely, if you know for a fact it couldn't have been written because the circumstances that led to it were so unusual, the fastest guy at that, the guy who can literally... So by quite often in an edit, you are, if, if there's like a few second pause and someone does a line, you might take a bit yeah. of air out of that. You might take a second out of it. Lee Mack is so fast, occasionally you have to put in a breath of air no, in between brilliant. the setup and him coming back with an answer because you think there's absolutely no way he came up with that that quickly. So occasionally you genuinely have to put in an extra sort of wow. just half second just so you believe that Lee came up with it. But his brain is so super fast. That's a good question. Yeah. Now, you never go on those shows. I presume I presume they ask you. I have been asked very many times over the years. I suppose for a long time, I thought, for many, many years, I thought it was sort of quite sexist. And it was, you, sometimes there would be one woman, but yeah. often there would be no women. 
And I always felt like, oh, I, it's just not necessarily my particular brand of humour. And also, you know, the chance to completely fuck your career in one night <laughs> for a relatively small appearance fee yeah. never felt that appealing. So I always thought, I'm, and I also do have a slight thing, which I'm really keeping a lid on in this podcast, which I often want to say the least appropriate thing in the situation. Listen, just you to, must. It's Christmas. You must. <laughs> to see what will happen. Marina. And I was never Marina, sure that I could control it. Have another Bailey's. <laughs> No, but I really, I was never sure that I could control it. When I was doing interviews for my book, actually, to some extent you were doing so many of them in a row and it becomes quite repetitive, as you know far better than me. But I, and I would always really have to stop myself from saying something just completely wild and inappropriate just to see what would happen. And I, I always felt that there was that tendency within me. But also, um, I, but mainly I just felt like I just don't think, I think it's sort of set up for the hosts and the um and the and the main, uh, the the resident panelist and not necessarily for guests. Yeah, that's interesting. I would say, would I like to use not like that? Actually, have yeah, you're right. is, is 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 not particularly like that. They're they're quite generous, Paul and Ian. Um, would you ever do would I like to you though? I suppose they could ask me. I don't feel I'm a front of camera person at all. I'm. I just. I have no desire to do it. I'm a sort of. I'm a backstage person. I'm writing or you know chatting in front of a microphone like this. Yeah, so was I though. I know. And look I at know. me now. And look at you now. <laughs> you love it. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put a word in. Okay. You've got this hit podcast now. <laughs> listen. What I like to you is gonna come call it. It'll be Taskmaster no, next. Oh my God. I mean, do you wish? That's what I really wanted to ask you. Sorry, I'm, this isn't an audience question. Do you wish you had come up with Taskmaster as a? As a I know you've been on it and you are amazing on it. Do you wish? That's very kind. No, I tell you what though, it's very helpful with House of Games. So House of Games. BBC, once Pointless was going and I wanted to do something for BBC Two, I said, I want to do a show where it's the same contestants all week. That's the thing I want to do. Yeah. I want to do like a sort of a quiz league and get a bit of the soap opera of the same contestants. And they all went, oh, no, I think, it, yeah, I think with our shows, it needs to be different people, I, th I think, probably. And I was like, I, do, I, I sort of thought, I think it would be great to do it. And then Taskmaster came out and was ah. a huge hit on Dave. And the next time I went in and said, I wonder if we could do this quiz where it's the same contestants uh, you know, every day. And they went, you mean like Taskmaster? And I went, yeah, like Taskmaster. They went, yeah, that sounds great. It's Let's a shame how much TV commissioning is like yeah, that. But I there we it, go. Though. In your slipstream, you created something absolutely brilliant. So, uh, yeah, ta Taskmaster did House of Games a lot of favours. That's a terrifying show. I'll, I'll talk about my experiences on Taskmaster at some point. I uh, absolutely love Taskmaster. Yeah. We're going to take a little Boxing Day break now. But straight after this break, I have a question for you, Marina, from Bob Bright that I want to hear the answer to as well. Bob, thanks for asking this. Have you, Marina, ever bumped into someone you have been less than kind to in the past? Reviews, etc., says Bob. And how do you deal with it? Have a little think over this break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. We are back. Um, Shall I repeat the question? From Bob Bright. Go on then. Uh, Marina, he asked, have you ever bumped into someone you've been less than kind to in the past and how do you deal with it? Okay, I should say that um, Steve Coverton used to do a character called Paul Calf, which is a brilliant character. And in one of the earlier video diaries, the actor John Hannah actually says to him, do I know you from somewhere? And he goes, you threatened to hit me at the Cinetech a year ago? And he <laughs> says, yeah, I mean, so many faces. <laughs> and obviously, given my output, in some ways, so many faces. I mm. often can't remember the things. I almost certainly can't remember the things I've written. And sometimes, I mean, there was one time I saw an actor and the look he gave me, I thought, yeah, I mean, I've obviously written something about you. Let me just Google your name and mine. And then I had, I thought, like, oh, yes, okay. Now, Boris Johnson used to do this all the time. And I didn't feel bad about anything I'd written about him. But if he saw me, he would glower really sort of performatively and kind of, stare at me and uh, which I always found so odd I mean Prime Minister you're being very uncool just pretend you haven't read it and I've told this story before but I am going to tell it again because it's relevant to the material Orson Welles the great film director actor um, genius of oh, sort of what did you uh, say Hollywood. about him yeah, no he <laughs> had someone who used to write about him all the time really nasty stuff in the sort of you know just a gossip columnist um, in the New York Daily News. And Orson Welles said, I always used to, be, every time I saw him, I greeted him like an old friend, just so he'd never think I'd read a single word that he'd written. Oh, that's the and way to this do is it. the way to do it. Now, I have got one other, which, um, do you remember Gok One? Gok One, who. Do I remember Gok One? Yeah, well, okay, fine. He's, he's still around. Yes, I know he is, but it's perhaps not so dominant as it was. Um, uh, and he, he, he'd done something, I can't remember, he'd herded a lot of women into a disused swimming pool and sort of power hosed them. And some others. Was, was this for TV? Uh, yes, it, yes, it was. Yeah, okay. But does that does that entirely excuse it? I never quite got on board with the uh, idea that he completely raised and uplifted women. Anyway, I wrote a really sarcastic, but it was a sort of in praise of Got One. In my view, very, very sledgehammer sarcastic all the way through. Um, and um, sort of, you know, resist him at your peril, all this sort of thing. But I thought it was a real, like, clobbering you around the head with what I was actually saying. Anyway, afterwards... I got a card saying thank you from Gok Kwan. <laughs> and so I always thought, first of all, brilliant. Either he just totally didn't get it, in which case, well done, Marina, you've really cocked up the writing of that one. Or he did, but was pretending he didn't and had sent me a card. Either way, well played, Gok Kwan. <laughs> you got me. I love the fact that everybody is now Googling Marina Hyde Gok Kwan <laughs> so they can read the article. Do you remember what you wrote about me? Oh, oh the look God. of terror on your face you never wrote about me. Oh, my God. Uh, you see, Merry Christmas, thing. Marina. <laughs> Can you imagine? I just say to people, look, I'm just a complete arsehole. Just ignore me. Ignore me. But actually, often I have been right. <laughs> God, that gave me an absolute whitey, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. As I say, so many faces. <laughs> 
The next is a question from George McMenemy, and it's slightly edited just for length. And he says, I wonder how much either of you have considered pro wrestling as a form of entertainment and your views on it. He mentions that people are quite snobbish about wrestling and because of the predetermined nature. But I mean, lots of stories are predetermined. And he says, you both seem more open in your philosophies of entertainment, even if it's not something you've considered before. So... I would like to say that, yes, I really think of wrestling as entertainment. I think it's totally fascinating. I've read a great book, actually, about um, Vince McMahon, the great impresario of the WWE called uh, Sex, Lies and Headlocks, which I recommend as a sort of brilliant, not very long, but really good fun sort of primer on the whole world of it all. And I think that wrestling's taught us so much about how to look at the world and look at those types of stories. Um, And actually, things like kayfabe, that kind of weird thing about what's artifice and what isn't, People wrote really interesting things about Donald Trump and how he was best viewed through the lens of wrestling. You saw Trump turn up at a lot of wrestling before he became the person who was running for president. Um, what about you? What do you think, Richard? Yeah, I love it. I always have loved it. And it's that snobbery is, yeah, but it's made up. You think, yeah, the yeah. people watching it know it's made up. Yeah. That's like me saying to you, you know that succession is made up. Yes. You know that, that Jesse and they... they they write. They know what's going to happen in the end, uh, but it's made up brilliantly, and that's the point. And you know, you have these multi generational storylines. Yeah. By the way, talking about Vince McMahon book, there is an amazing book about sixties and seventies and eighties British wrestling. I've heard of this, but I haven't read it. What's it called? It's the Wrestling by Simon Garfield, oh. uh, and it's just a series of interviews with lots of the wrestlers from that from that era and the TV execs and all, all sorts of things. It's so good. It's such a picture of a, of, of a certain uh, era in Britain. I really, really would recommend that as well. I think if you read the wrestling and the Vince McMahon book, we've pretty much got everything we've, covered. Yes. No, it's extraordinary. They've built huge empires out of it because they They've give... also built huge stars. Yeah. I mean, you know, The Rock is arguably probably the biggest movie star in the world. They've got John Cena. Lots of people have come out of it. And it's kind of extraordinary that they've had such a kind of pull on the whole world of entertainment, not just in this kind of siloed thing that lots of people think is silly. So we love wrestling. Yes. I would say other than Tony Khan, who, is the, uh, who, who runs Fulham, also runs AEW Wrestling, uh, which is becoming incredibly successful. And I worry he's taking his eye off the, uh, the transfer market sometimes because he's dealing with... I, <laughs> listen, I love him being successful. Fair play to you, Tony, but uh, we do need a striker. <laughs> Shall I read this yeah, one, Yeah, sure. Okay, this one's from Mrs. M. When did series efficiently become season and why? I stubbornly refuse to refer to anything as, e.g., the second season of a TV show. Now, actually, the series is the overall thing, is the technical answer to this question. Um, not particularly fascinating. And the season is the individual what we've sometimes in the UK used to call series within it. So this year we saw the final season of Succession and therefore the series finale. Uh, so that is a quite a boring technical answer, but that's a question. They are different things. That's good. We can also do that stuff, can't we? Yes, we it's can. Not, it's not just opinion. We are. <laughs> we've, we've also got facts. Coming to you live from the series finale of the UK, we are just <laughs> talking about how to use the words correctly. We have a lovely question here from John Selleck, who thus far has the name that's closest to Tom Selleck of any of our listeners. Thank you, John. And he says, how can kids Saturday morning TV be reborn? Brackets, please say it can. As a father of three, it would be a very appreciated addition to our weekly family routine. Is there an inkling of a chance it could ever happen again? Oh, the third parent. The third parent. So useful. 
Uh, I think it's, I mean, we. I grew up watching this sort of thing and it was like a form of, it was much better than having Sunday school. It was Saturday morning television. It Swap was, shop. Yeah, tis was. My mum, because she was a bit of a social climber, preferred us to watch the BBC. Yes, there was a big yeah, thing about that. People that, didn't it? like ITV and yeah. regard it as sort of declassé. And, now she know. literally watches nothing but ITV4, yeah. so how the worm has turned. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so Swap Shop uh, was my first one. Then it was going live, live and kicking. Yeah. Here's the news: it's not coming back. Any shows really that are live, so you can only do one at a time. They really have to pull their weight in the ratings, or they have to pull their weight in you know being repeated or sellable. And those shows just don't do that. And there's so much content now for children. There's channels which are completely dedicated to it. There is not the money to make those types of programs anymore. Yeah, linear appointment to view. I mean, it's really, it's hard to imagine that now, but it was, Saturday morning was appointment to view. For oh, it was crazy. We children. would, yeah, we yeah. would watch someone being rude to five star, you know, to watch Cheggers up to something or other. It was such a zoo. You just never knew what was going to happen. You'd having lots of adults and often quite, I think, like extremely hungover or not having gone to bed since the night before in the children's environment was... But children love that. They know yeah. what's coming and they know how anarchic it is. And those a lot of those people went on to produce the most anarchic shows for adults. I mean, obviously, what's, before it was people like Noel Edmonds, but now it's Anton Deck and they've graduated from that. To, they did SMTV. Yes, SMTV with Cat. Um, I've got such a great story about Noel and Cheggers, which I can't tell. It's such a good, it's a, it's a swap shop story oh. that I was told many years ago that it's, um, I mean, it would break your heart. It's not for Boxing Day, I'm afraid. We'll have a password protected version of this podcast coming up soon and you will be able to get all the libelous and yeah. just really kind of toxic and unsuitable material. Yes, and just click on subscribe and indemnify if you want to follow that. <laughs> um, I have a question for you. I think okay. this is more for you, uh, Marina, from Emily Light. Celebrities paying off the press slash journalists to prevent scandalous or private information being released, does this happen much? Oh, it's interesting. I don't think it happens at all, actually. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think that's how you create, uh, how you keep scandalous stuff out of the news. You might have a publicist whose job it is to um, keep stuff out of the press for you. And many people have had this over the years. And that publicist will work essentially by having power. Maybe they've got lots of other clients. Maybe they can give the newspapers kind of other stories to say, keep, we'll keep this one out of the press as long as you run this. I mean, Max Clifford, who was a sort of legendary publicist who I should say ended up going to prison for sex offences against women and girls and died inside. He used to do this all the time and he had a whole array of people he was looking after and he'd say, no, you can't have that, but you can have this. Um, and it was a constant, you know, business of horse trading. Um, sometimes what people would say is if, if a newspaper had exposed someone for, I don't know, drug taking and visiting sex workers, there would be like sort of deals saying, could you keep the drug taking off the front page, which always seemed to me such a sort of academic distinction since it would be in the actual story itself. Um, or they would say, find um, some guy who had been having gay affairs and then they might say, oh, we'll do it. You can have an interview with him, the publicist might say, as long as you say the affairs were with women and not with men. I mean, these are sort of horrible stories, but this is how it worked. Um, I think there's a lot even now, obviously, with publicists saying you won't have any of my clients for the cover of your magazine when, next time you're coming to ask if you run this. Or you can't, as I said earlier, you can't have that story, but here's something that's also really good that I'm going to leak to you so that we keep that one out of the way. That sort of horse trading happens all the time and it happens 
quite often at a very senior level, like the editor of the tabloid will be the person who is doing that sort of a deal because people are feeling that they are doing something kind of underhand and they only want to go to the very top of the organisation to have that conversation. But, I mean, someone was telling me about about that happening only last week uh, with a story. So it happens a lot all the time. Well, there was a someone who recently left quite a high-profile agency and suddenly there were stories about her in the press that weren't there before, you know, and it's because she'd sort of come out from under that protection. I always remember whenever there were Love Rat stories, you could always tell if the guy himself had sold the story because it would either say he was an incredible lover or he was a terrible lover. And if it's incredible lover, it's because he'd sold the story. And if it's a terrible lover, it's because they'd found the story from somewhere else. Yes. Listen, shall we end with a Christmas question? Yes, because we're still in our Boxing Day pyjamas. Our Christmas Day pyjamas, don't remember. Come on, let's call back to the start of the show (laughs) when it was Christmas. Do you remember? Still Christmas Day. It's been a long journey. Oh, now, I'm this really, is looking from... forward to, really looking forward to the King's speech. Yeah. <laughs> what he's going to say. This is from Zahid Fayez, who says, weirdest and best Christmas episode of a TV show. Oh, I have got a particular favourite. This is the Star Wars holiday special. This is this genuinely existed. It came out in 1978, the year after Star Wars was released, and b- between the release of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, it is so bad that it was only shown once, and it was regarded as this huge embarrassment. But it did happen. It was on CBS. You can now watch these things on YouTube, which has taken away some of the magic because for a long time there was sort of urban myths and people couldn't really exist. They believe they'd happened. And whenever I was in New York, I always used to go to this place called the Museum of TV and Radio where you could call up anything that actually had ever been broadcast on American television and look at these kind of esoteric gems that were now under lock and key. I think it's now called the Paley Center. Anyway, now you can see this thing on Star- uh, on YouTube and I urge you to. It is the old... The old driving home for Christmas plotline, but um, it is Han Solo getting Chewbacca back to his planet for something called Life Day, because it's the galaxy far, far away, so can't have Christmas. It involves Princess Leia singing some sort of Life Day carol to the Star Wars theme music. Um, It involves B. Arthur from the uh, Golden Golden Girls. She's like a a bar woman in Mos Eisley for some reason. Um, there's various other things, but what's so dreadful about it in terms of the actual Star Wars fans is that it has to be canon. It has to be official because they had a small animated section in it in which the character of Boba Fett was introduced. It's the first Whoa, introduction of the character, okay. so it now has to be canon because it, it it relates to multiple stories, timelines, all of these things. So I really, please take a look on, uh, and everyone gets introduced at the start in this kind of ridiculous way, like, and Harrison Ford as Han Solo, and he kind of does a little wink at the camera. It is so cheesy, and it's so not in, I mean, it's it's absolutely, it's a real gem, and have a look at it, but, a, a, you know, a, a poisonous gem. That's our little Christmas present to you, yeah. and I refer you to my previous answer about celebrity escape to the country um <laughs> that was fun that was great we'll do more questions once. i think so we great must do questions. more questions because there were so many good ones it was pretty hard to choose yeah there's loads of good ones left over as well yes yeah, so please keep writing them in because um they're a great jumping off point um merry christmas everybody we will see you i guess in the new year the next one will be out. it will be just into the new year just into and we'll the be looking year. ahead into that new year richard oh that's clever yeah. That's good. That's some really good formatting. You notice that my links are actually starting to develop. Yeah. Oh, it's really, really good. Honestly, you really come on. I'm really, I'm very excited to see what 2024 is going to bring you. We'll make me a talentless amateur yet. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. And to you.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.